so how many of you see that video and you're like, where can I sign up for that vacation package? I want that. Let's see those hands. Let's go ahead. Colleen Bird, I know you're there. You've jumped, you've, you've jumped out of an airplane before, haven't you? Right? Yeah, I thought so. How many of you would say, I don't want to be anywhere near any of that stuff? I'm not, nope, don't care. <laughs> it's fun. What's that? No, not my home movies. Um, the question for you guys, though, is this. You see a bunch of these activities. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? I should say legally. <laughs> I don't, we are live streaming. I don't want the police to show up at any of your houses after this is over. So what's the riskiest thing you've done? Colleen, you've jumped out of a plane. That's pretty risky. How was it? Um, uh, you, would you do it again? That's the question. Oh. <laughs> We had several in the first service that have done the parachuting. Jumped onto a moving train. Jumped onto a moving train? Oh, that's scary. That's frightening. <laughs> wow. And his wife just looked at him and said, what? <laughs> Anybody else? What's something risky you've done? Are you just not that adventurous of people? Man, you guys are quiet. You know you've done it. You just need more time to think about it. Yeah, I'm with you. Several years ago, my family vacationed in Gulf Shores, uh, Alabama. And here's a little video. This thing is called the Sky Coaster. Has anybody ever done this before? So you'll see somebody wave in a moment. That's me. There I am. Uh, and the, in the, the guy in the middle is my dad. At that time, he was 66 years old, I believe. My brother's on the end. He's just a few years older than me. But as you can see, they lot strap you in. They pull you up. And then I'll just let you see what happens. This is probably one of the riskier things. It's not really that risky. It was really a lot of fun. Didn't, I mean, I, I like roller coasters. Any roller coaster fans out there? Yep. So we like some roller coasters. You know, this is fun. So what happens is they pull you up and then they have a, a rip cord right there next to you. So the person, I didn't get to pull it this time, but uh, my brother, he was paying. So he got to pull it. <laughs> So you get up there, and you stop, and they say, go, and you pull the cord, and there you go. <laughs> that was my sister-in-law's video. It's a lot of fun. Uh, what's interesting is we were back there five years later, so we were there in 2019, I believe, and the three of us did it again. My dad was 71 at that time, or 72, and so, uh, yeah, he, uh, he did that again, so it was a lot of fun. Um, I will tell you, I don't see the need or the purpose for jumping out of a perfectly functioning airplane. Um, I, I just think, you know, that's just ridiculous, honestly. Bungee jumping, I think I would do. Has anybody bungee jumped before here? Oh, Gene, why, why does that not surprise me? See, I love these questions. You just learn so much about people. I'm not a water thrills guy. It's something to do with wearing contacts and not being able to see if they get washed out of my eye that makes me a little nervous. But uh, I think most of us, the normal ones, have limits to what we would do. Would anybody in here say there's no limit? I would just nearly do anything thrill-seeking. Mm. Nobody. We had a few in the first service that were like, oh yeah, that's me. Sign me up. But the normal ones, there are limits to what we would do. But the question is, is what about when it comes to following Jesus? Right. Are there limits to what we're willing to do, how far we are willing to go for him. 
That's kind of the ultimate question. You know, last week we started the series, we're calling it Beauty for Ashes, where we're looking at how, during Lent, we're going to be looking at how God takes the pain, the difficulties, the heartaches, the temptations, the challenges of our lives, and he's offering an exchange for something incredibly beautiful. And uh, today we're going to turn to a story in the New Testament, or oh, excuse me, Old Testament, to see how God's call to one man was full of beautiful promises. I mean, beautiful promises, but it would mean he's going to have to take some incredible risks to see them. So we're going to pick up our story today in Genesis chapter 12. Um, And uh, before we get to 12, let me set the scene a little bit. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, that's the beginning of the book. We know that one and two are creation. Three is kind of the fall and rebellion of humanity. And then you move forward from there. You've got the wonderful narrative of the flood, which is a horrible story, realistically, you know, and it's terrible that, you know, the world is wiped out and Noah and his family are the only ones left. And then you have the story of the Tower of Babel, where, you know, they're building a a tower to heaven and the languages are confused and we kind of have the birth of the nations. And so you kind of have this action packed filled 11 chapters at the beginning of Genesis. And then as we get to chapter 12, something interesting happens is the tone, the, the focus changes, because really the first 11 chapters really have an, incredibly, uh, an incredible global focus. It's looking at the world, the cosmos, and all this. And then in chapter 11, we seem to switch the story to an individual, one family. And if you look at that, you kind of go, hmm, that's interesting. wonder why he does that. And, uh, you know, is God going to now play favorites? That's kind of a question, you know, is what's, what's going on? But if we pay close attention, we're going to see that it's not that God's playing favorites at all. That even though the story shifts from a global perspective to one family and then one nation, the motive behind what's going on is still the same. There's still a global focus in what God is doing. How God is going to reveal himself to his creation, to the world, is going to be through this man, through this family. And how he is going to redeem and restore the world is going to be through this individual as well. And I heard a pastor say this week, he said, so what we have in this storyline where we go to one individual, it says this is going to be the storyline that redeems all other storylines. And I thought that's a beautiful way of thinking about that. Um, So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And we're going to pick up the story there. Let's look at it. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, what's interesting here is if you've read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what you find is... Abram, who we later know as Abraham, forgive me, I'm going to switch back and forth just because I can't keep it straight. Um, He kind of pops on the scene. We don't know a lot about him. Chapter 11 gives us a hint. We see some of his genealogy. We see that he he and his family, they were on their way to Canaan. They stopped in a place called Haran, and they kind of stopped. That's just where they landed. It was like, all right, this is good enough. Here we are. And they set up camp. They kind of spread out there. And that's even where his father dies. And and Haran is in what is now eastern Turkey. Um, But as I read this, you know, Honestly, it, it seems a bit abrupt as you're reading those first 11 chapters because it's almost like, and then God speaks to this guy. And so I, I come to it with a lot of, I'm a question asker. I'm inquisitive. I'm the kid you never wanted, you know, because I'm always like, well, why, why, why? 
And I, I, I approach this passage the same way. For example, why is Abraham chosen? He wasn't the only guy around. There are a bunch of people around. What was it about Abram that made him so special? Why does he have to move to realize God's promises? Why doesn't God like give him something ahead of time, you know, give him a little treat to tell him, to show him what's coming, but he doesn't. He's just like, nope, you got to go and then I'll give it all to you. What does God's voice sound like? Anybody curious about that one? I mean, we don't have a lot of examples in the first 11 chapters of Genesis of like, this is what the Lord sounds like. I mean, we know that he, he created, he talked with that, walked with Adam and Eve. We know that he talked with Noah, but like, how does Abraham know that it's, you know, the voice of God and not just some bad hummus he had the night before? I'm very curious about that, you know? And I, what I really want to know is how big of a fight did he get into with his wife when he went home and he said, guess what, honey, we're moving. You ever done that before? Yeah. Um, talk about thrill seeking. <laughs> <clears throat> God comes to Abram and he says to him, I want you to go where I will lead you. And he doesn't even tell him. He doesn't give him a map. He's not like, here's where you're going. He says, just trust me. Anybody else kind of go, hmm, I don't know about this. I mean, there's so much going on here in this story that we have to come to. I mean, this is a new God, essentially, for Abram. It wasn't like his, this was the family God. Now, they had gods. We'll talk about that in a second. But this was kind of a new thing, the one true God, Yahweh, as he's revealing himself. And so what is it about Abram that he's like, will I trust or will I, you know? So what we need to see is Abram is in this incredible crisis of belief moment. And I don't think we need to minimize that, that it's just like Abram's like, yeah, sure, I'm not doing anything. It's Tuesday. Let's go. You know, I mean, this would have been huge for him. And it does lead him to this question of will he stay or will he go? And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, there's a lot of reasons that God gives him that he should go. There's a lot of reasons that God's laying out for him to say, here's, here's why you should do this. And it begins with land. I mean, that's the American dream, right? We all want to own something, home ownership. And then, even then, the opportunity to own land would have been a big draw. That sounds pretty pretty impressive. You know, I mean, I, I admit, give me some land. I mean, you could, Pennsylvania sounds really nice, you know, to have as a, as my own nation, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. But not only that, but he's also promised a lineage. He's promised a son. And we'll find out in a minute when we read the next verse that Abraham is, Abraham is 75 years old. His wife is what, 10 years younger than him. And so she's 65, way past the childbearing years. And so the possibility of a child for them, that had faded a long time ago. I mean, that, that idea was gone. But here's this God that he may or may not know really well, promising a son. You're in Abraham's position. You're kind of like, okay, you've got my attention because a lineage was so important. They didn't have a son. It died. It stopped with them. And so that promise is huge. And then, of course, you have just this generic, I will bless you. Oh, cool. I like blessings. Let's do that, you know? And so, and then also, God tells him, he says, I'll be with you. And so you see that God is also promising to Abram his presence. He's not just saying, go and I won't be with you, but he's saying, here, I'm, I'm here with you. You're not going to be alone. That's kind of, that sounds amazing, right? I mean, that sounds really good. It seems like a no-brainer until we begin to look back and say, well, what would he have to be giving up? What were his reasons to stay? 
And then we have to go, well, okay, well, he's going to be asked to give up his comfort. I mean, we all like a comfort zone. That's why I call it a comfort zone, because it's very comfortable, and we don't like to leave it. There's something about being there that's just like it feels good, it feels right, and yet God's saying you can't stay there. you got to move. Okay, I can, might be able to get over that, but then you move to security, and it's like, okay, so where Abraham, Abram is, he's with his family, and with his family, with his tribe, his clan, there is security. So if another tribe or clan comes over, it's like, no, 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 we've got people, we've got numbers, we can exist together, and we can beat them together because there's strength in numbers, and but if I leave, whew, where's my strength? Where's my security at that point? It kind of diminishes. And then the third thing he misses, possibly, is his inheritance. As a son, he would have inherited his father's uh, possessions when he died, when his father died. But by walking away, he would be giving those up. He would be walking away from that sure thing of the land and all those things that he had there. But then also, what he also would have to give up would be the gods of his family, And you have to understand, in this time period, it wasn't one God. It was multiple gods, and your family had gods. You know, read further in Genesis, I think it was Laban, and, you know, one of his daughters steals some of his family gods. These gods were regional. They were tied to a specific place, and yet here we have that I would have to be walking away from the faith of my fathers, the faith of my family, for the potential of a new faith in a singular God, which would really monotheism would have been unheard of mostly, to give that up for this, to leave everything behind for the opportunity of this mysterious Yahweh God, the creator, one true God. Think about that challenge. Could God be the replacement for all the other gods in his life? I don't know. Could this be, God be the one and only God that he needed? I mean, what's interesting to me is as you, you know, if we put these two lists side by side, what's interesting is that what you find is that Abraham, everything he's being asked to give up, God is really, really addressing it. He's saying, oh, I'll replace that. I'm going to give you something better than what you've had. And so what you find is that Abraham is really at a crossroads what am I going to do? I mean, what would you do if you were in his position? It's a tough question, right? I mean, it's easy on this side of Genesis to look back and go, oh, I know it was easy. And Abraham left and God blessed him. And oh, so good. Hindsight's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Foresight, not so much. And when you're sitting in that position, what would you do? I was reading this week, and uh, one author put it this way. He said, God asks Abram to choose. He must decide whether to abandon his land in favor of the land Yahweh offers. He must decide whether to abandon what family he still has in favor of the family Yahweh promises against all logic given Sarah's infertility. He must decide whether to set aside his blessing, his inheritance, for the inheritance Yahweh describes. The initiative offers much, but its cost is significant. Abram must trust Yahweh to deliver what he has offered in order to give up so much that Abram already has to gain. He's got that. Is he willing to sacrifice? And there it is as we read that. That's the question, isn't it? Trust. He must trust. 
And if we keep reading Genesis 12, 4, you'll read that what happens. It said, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And if you read ahead, you'll find out that God does make good on his promises, not necessarily that Abraham gets to see the fulfillment of all those promises in his lifetime, but God does make good on them. Um, and God does make good on his promises, even in spite of Abraham's best efforts to screw it all up time and time again. I mean, what we love to do is we want a pretty picture, don't we? We want, oh, God called and Abraham answered and it was just perfect from there on out. Well, go read the story about how Abraham tries to pass off his wife as his sister to save his own skin against Pharaoh. I mean, all of us kind of look, you basically gave your wife to be in a harem, a sex servant for Pharaoh. Any of you women okay with that? Didn't think so. <laughs> but that's what we see. And so with Abram, we don't see this perfect journey from the moment he sets out. It wasn't perfect for either of them. In fact, it would be 25 years before the promise of a son, that lineage would come to pass. I mean, can you imagine hearing what you believe to be the voice of God and he makes a promise to you and then having to sit on that promise for 25 years? Question, any of you think you might start to doubt? Any of you think you might start to take that into your own hands to say, well, let me see how I can help God with this. I mean, he promised it. Let me just give him a hand. And that's exactly what we see with Abraham. They took it into their own hands. Sarah gave, her, gave him her servant and he impregnates her. And then he has a son called Ishmael. And you see that story as well. And for whatever dysfunctions Abraham might have had, God still used him. I need you to hear that. For whatever dysfunction Abraham had, God still used him. In fact, it's not even that God just used him in Genesis. That when we turn over into the New Testament, we find that Abraham is even exalted as this, uh, this example of faith that we are encouraged to follow, to have a faith similar to that of Abraham. I mean, we could talk about Hebrews 11, the faith chapter where Abraham's mentioned like three times in there. But when you go to Romans chapter four, Paul's writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, Jews and Gentiles alike, and he's talking to them about faith and sin and salvation and justification. And it's heady. What Paul is writing here is heady. And when he gets to Romans 4, listen to what he says about Abraham. He says, What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace 
and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, not only to the Jewish people, but also to all those who have the faith of Abraham. Paul is including Gentiles here, and he says, he is the father of us all. He's writing this very broad statement here. Paul says Abraham was made righteous by faith. That makes a great bumper sticker, but what in the world does that even mean? Is anybody else curious? It's like, well, that sounds good. It sounds like a religious thing to say. And I think one of the problems is that we have so sterilized that message that we have missed what Paul is talking about here. We miss what is happening in the life of Abraham. I mean, we've distorted this idea of faith and we've reduced it to doctrine or we've reduced it to decision when it's, you know, thinking of it more as afterlife insurance. But what it is, it is the power of God to transform our lives and to position us to experience the promises of God, just like Abraham. Now, with that, Paul talks about what faith is not. And he begins with this. He says, faith is not works. It's not works. It's not a paycheck for you. If our faith was dependent upon our actions, we would never qualify. But that's what we chase after. That's really what we desire because we, that keeps us in the driver's seat. It keeps us in control. If we have this transactional relationship with God, hey God, I did a good thing. I, I gave to the church. I helped an old lady across the street. I get, donated some food to the food pantry. You owe me. Now, when I say it like that, it sounds silly, doesn't it? But how silly is it really? Because how much of that really does work its way into our definition of faith? I did something, God, therefore you owe me. And if that is how God worked, our reward, our justification, our righteousness would be nothing more than God giving us our obligation. But that is what makes what God did through Abraham and by extension through us even more powerful. Because God was under no obligation. Think about this. He owed you nothing. He owed me nothing. And yet, as Paul writes, he justifies the ungodly. Can I get an amen? Amen. Our faith is credited to us as righteousness. And this takes us beyond that transactional religion. I do something for God, therefore he owes me. Or even the inverse, God has done something for me and therefore I owe him. You see, it's not even that way transactional either. That's the whole point of a gift of grace, which, come, which is brought about through faith. Our faith, our belief... And any actions that may be a part of that are not our attempt to get on God's good side or our attempt to pay our obligation to God. You know what they are? They are response. They are a response to God's grace and his self-giving love to us. And I have to tell you, this is hard for us because God's grace, which is given to us, in abundance doesn't follow our societal rules of achievement and reciprocity. 
We are so eat up with achievement and success and I have done this, therefore I'm owed, that I think it makes it fully difficult for us to understand what God's grace is all about. We have trouble just receiving the gift. I mean, how many of you, if somebody were to walk up to you today with a gift of $500 in cash, your first response would be, oh, no, 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 no. It's how we're wired. It's that self-sufficient garbage that we grow up with in our culture that God is saying, that's not a part of what faith is. What I'm doing for you is a free and generous gift, not because I have to, but because I want to, and I want you to experience it. And notice the sequence of events for Abraham. He didn't trust God because he was righteous. (laughs) He was made righteous by trusting God. And we have to keep those things in the proper order. God did what he did for Abraham because that's what God does. Period. And here's the kicker. (laughs) What begins with belief and trust and faith will always lead to action. It will, not obligation. There's an author, his name is Klein Snodgrass. He's a theologian and he writes in his book, You Need a Better Gospel. It's a great name for a book, right? He writes this, he says, Faith is not what most people think it is. And it is not merely what you do with your brain. It's what you do with your life. And then he follows that up and the uh, uh, Snodgrass asks this. He says, can one have faith without faithfulness? Ooh, let's sit on that question for a bit. That's That's an interesting question, isn't it? Now imagine for just a moment, what would have happened if God called Abram and he said, go, I've got all these great promises for you. And Abram said, man, I believe those promises. Woo, those are some amazing promises. And he never left. He never made the month-long journey from Haran to Canaan. What would Abram have experienced of God? Nothing. Nothing. Now, he'd have a good story to tell his neighbors. Guys, the other day I was out walking, and there was this God, and he spoke to me. And you should have heard him. He made these incredible promises and whoo, I was on a spiritual high. And even as I say that, I think to myself, how many times have we reduced our faith to the same dang thing? We have an experience with God. Woo, God speaks to me and we just sit right where we are. And it doesn't move us. It doesn't motivate us. And everything that Abraham received was because he was faithful in his following of God. And what he would have missed is everything. The land, the lineage, God himself. Like I said, I can't help but think how we have come to faith and we've reduced it to that. I think I said in the first, first service, we've castrated God, emasculated God, in that we've reduced our faith to this mental ascent of right doctrine when that is never 
ever what God had in mind, ever. God is calling us, calling us to step out of our comfort zone, to participate with him in our faith, to join him in what he is doing in the world. I read this week a statistic. It said that 64% of millennials self-identify as Christians. I thought that was high. Then it said, but only 22% practice their faith. And then they define practice their faith to be going to church once a month and saying faith is important to you. Now, I don't say that so that we can go post on Facebook those worthless millennials because I assume that that could be said about all generational groups. I think it definitely applies. And as a pastor, I want you to know that I think it's only fair that I take responsibility for some, if not most, or all of this because of the way we as the church have packaged faith for so long. Say this prayer. Believe this right doctrine. You're good. Snodgrass says in his book, he says, we've been handed a gospel of no responsibility, but Jesus' teaching never offered anything without responsibility. We participate with Christ. Do you know why? Because we are in Christ. Man, read the New Testament, read Paul, and the number of times it talks about us being in Christ. And what does that mean? It means we are in Christ with what he is doing in the world. So interesting. And what I love about Abraham, what I love about what Paul says is he really does expand this. You know, he really does say, look, what what God was doing through Abraham wasn't just for Abraham. It wasn't just an isolated thing. It wasn't for just this people group, that he is the father of us all, Jews and non-Jews alike. And what a promise, what an opportunity. We all have what Abraham had sown in our hearts. And I think God continually asks us, will you go? Will you go? Will you step out in faith? Will you trust? Will you believe? I mean, the question ultimately comes down to, do we really believe what God is calling us to? Do we really believe that following Jesus is better than the way we're currently following, than the way the path we're currently on? Do we really see Jesus as worth leaving our comfort zone, leaving that security, shifting our faith, changing our ideas, calling us to something different? Is that, do we really believe what Jesus is offering is better? That's a powerful question, isn't it? I'd just, I'd just rather not have that question. Just let me be comfortable. Let me just sit here and do my faith thing without all this challenge, Brent. But I can't help but wonder if what we sometimes reduce, reduce faith to doesn't cause us to miss out on the incredible work that God is still doing in the world. You see, I don't read the Bible and look at all these great things as, oh, look at what God did then. God didn't expose revelation to us with John the Elder and then go, done. That's a very deist view. 
of God. And I don't believe that God went to all the trouble of revealing himself to Abraham, coming in flesh, revealing himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, just so you and I could believe the right things. The work of Jesus is all about transformation, and that is what faith is all about. It starts with belief and trust. I mean, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, is around this incredible moment with John, or excuse me, Jesus and Nicodemus, a religious leader, a Pharisee who was so intimidated and not really wanting to be seen with Jesus that he comes to him at night. And Jesus explains to him what it means to follow And in that conversation, John records this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Believe. There's that word, believe. Something stirring within our hearts, that seed of faith that's been planted, that's stirred up, that causes us to do crazy, thrill-seeking things like getting up in the morning and say, you know what, Jesus, I will follow you today, wherever you lead, wherever you go, whatever it costs me, whatever it means, because following you is worth it. What leads people to that place? Our message community said it was holy discontent. Holy discontent. I mean, have you ever sat and looked and you ever gone, is this all there is? One of the authors that I really enjoy right now, Trevor Hudson, has a book out called Seeking God. And he uses this statement in the early chapters. He says, it doesn't have to be this way. Whew. The potential of that phrase, it doesn't have to be this way. He writes in his book, Hudson does, he says, as I'm sure you know, for all of us, there comes a time when our faith loses its sense of edgy adventure and get stuck in a deadening familiarity. Think of how easy it is to go through all the usual motions of worshiping God without knowing the reality of God, to accumulate insights about God without encountering God, to express beliefs in God without surrendering to God, to talk about God without following God. Again, these words speak to our condition. It doesn't have to be this way. You see, I wrap up today just by saying this, a reminder God still calls. God still stirs. God still says to you and to me, let's go. Let me take you places you've never imagined. It doesn't mean a life full of unicorns and rainbows. In fact, a quick look at the lives of those who follow Jesus destroys the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. But the adventure of faith we're being invited into is something this world continues to promise but fails to deliver time and time again. But Jesus is where it is. Is there something stirring in you, a longing, a curiosity, a holy discontent? What is it that God could be calling you to? Now, I realize that sometimes this passage of Abraham, pastors love to use this to be a call to ministry. Step out of your job, become a pastor, go on the mission field. That's not what we're talking about. Maybe it is. If God's stirring you that way, that's fine. But, you know, it's not always that big. Sometimes it's just a call away from the habits or the behaviors, the ideas or the beliefs that God may be leading us from. It's those ideas, those beliefs that are keeping us in bondage, that are keeping us from experiencing life. And God's saying, come, experience the fullness that I have 
for you. As I said, it doesn't mean that faith is always up and to the right, just a perfect way from that point forward. Faith doesn't work like that. It's usually much more like a thrilling roller coaster ride. But I can tell you what a ride it is. God is still moving. God is still calling people to step out in faith. The question is, is when he speaks, how will you respond?